I think a lot of my work and a lot of this podcast and even, you know, as you've been saying through this interview, I, I think I have always been doing this work in some ways of yeah. trying to shake out in my family or, you know, the the things that people might not want to look at or want to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that it's still not a comfortable process sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I do it doesn't mean it's comfortable, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's also, it's something that you have to be really sensitive about. I mean, I think when I was young and, you know, trying to get this, this, trying to better understand my family and my place in the world, mm -hmm. um, I don't think I did understand why my mom wouldn't want to talk about things, you know, why she wouldn't want to talk about her childhood. A again, mm -hmm. like I, I grew up in Homer and, and I had a very beautiful childhood, um, which I think is something that both of my parents wanted for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the idea that someone wouldn't want to talk about that was kind of incomprehensible to me. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, but when you're asking difficult questions, a lot of times there is potentially trauma involved or mm -hmm, there's, mm -hmm. you know, potentially things that can be that are unresolved and that are sticky for people to discuss. And mm -hmm, um, yeah. that requires a lot of sensitivity, too. That was Caitlin Armstrong. She's the host of The Alaska Myth a podcast that deconstructs the stories created during the Russian settlement and European colonization of Alaska that began in the mid-1700s. Utopian settler stories, stories of the rugged outdoors, ones of monetary opportunity, and ones of lawlessness. These stories, often embellished or completely fabricated, have informed the Alaskan identity and sense of place for generations. Meanwhile, overlooking or ignoring the history and the lifeways of the many Alaska Native cultures. Caitlin says that she's been thinking about all of this for years, about how the idea of the last frontier is subtle and insidious because of what it hides. On the surface, these stories are ones of can-do spirit and gritty individualism, stories that reinforce our idea of Alaskan pride. But underneath all of that, there's violence, resource extraction, and the erasure of Native peoples and their cultures. Caitlin grew up in Homer, Alaska. There, she says she had an idyllic upbringing in the small, tight-knit community. But her understanding of what goes into creating this idyllic place changed over the years. That the land had to be conquered first, and then it could be made into this place she grew up in. That knowledge and curiosity extended to her own Honduran heritage, of which she knew little about as a kid, because for so long, it was just too difficult for her mom to talk about. But every summer, Caitlin's grandma would visit, and she would connect with her heritage through her. But Caitlin says she always felt more Alaskan than anything else. So here she is, Caitlin Armstrong. <laughs> Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and, and future. future.
My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. How important do you think myths are to our everyday lives? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think myth is something that is always floating in the background of our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, myths are stories, ultimately. And when, you know, stories drive so much of our behavior and our thinking Mm -hmm. and the way that we perceive different situations. And so uh, I think myth is central, even if it's not something that you can always see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the idea that every civilization throughout history, for better or for worse, runs on myths, and that in certain cases, those myths become strongly held beliefs and even religions. Yeah, I think that that seems like something that has merit to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of times myths can become these origin stories Mm -hmm. or central organizing principles for how we relate to each other, how we understand our place in society, um, or, you know, what our what our values are, all of these things can be encoded in myth. And I think that can definitely resonate uh, really far outward into these larger systems that organize our society, I guess. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Central organizing principles. I like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, the the role of myth is something I've been thinking about, honestly, kind of endlessly okay. <laughs> for the last couple of years, uh, as I have been working on this podcast about Alaskan settler myths and Alaskan identity. And, um, you know, here in Alaska, I think the these myths that are connected to our history and Mm -hmm. the way that we understand what the trajectory of our state has been have so many broader repercussions um, Mm -hmm. in terms of how we understand ourselves collectively and individually as Alaskans and how we understand the future of our state as well. Mm -hmm. I, you know, our present circumstances and our future. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a big topic for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that's so all encompassing that, when I was writing these questions, I found myself constantly having to be very specific. You know, in the myths that we're talking about, you know, you and I right now, these myths are, we have to keep it Alaskan because if we try to span out to the nation at large or even the world, I mean, it's going to be, there's just too much. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it can definitely um, get really, really big, really fast, I guess. Yeah. And in your personal experience, when do myths become harmful? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think I think when they are 
I think myths become harmful when they are used in order to enact violence mm. and when they're used to hide truths. Okay. Uh, I guess would be uh, my succinct answer to uh, what's a, a very big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I wonder if you have any examples. Well, uh, I think the primary example from the podcast is the myth of the last frontier, mm. right? And so I think um, the, the idea of the last frontier is very interesting because it's something that is so romanticized and depending on who you ask, um, it might have a very positive connotation. Mm -hmm. uh, so, or, you know, even thinking about how my family ended up in Alaska, uh, my dad was an avid reader of Alaska Magazine when he was a kid. Mm, okay. And so, or, you know, and he grew up in Utah where he did a lot of hunting and fishing and hiking. And I think he very much um, wanted to come to Alaska in order to be able to, to do those things, to participate in those activities. And I think what is very um, subtle, but kind of sinister about the myth of the frontier mm -hmm. is what it hides in that like, yes, Alaska is this place where there's so much access to outdoor activities or, you know, where there is a lot of um, freedom. Mm -hmm. um, but the the frontier, if we think about what a frontier is historically, it's a place that must be created and maintained through violence mm. uh, because a frontier is a place where essentially land is being taken from one group of people uh, in order to create opportunities for another group of people at the expense of the people who were already here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think myth, another way in which myth can be harmful, and again, it's kind of subtle and it's kind of tricky, mm -hmm. is that it romanticizes and normalizes things while taking our attention away from all of the violence that is necessary for this place to exist as it is, for Alaska to exist as a frontier. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, there's a lot that goes into that, that the myth leaves out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rather than coming to Alaska and being a part of what already existed. They have to create this thing that implies ownership. Yes, exactly. So you're creating notions of property that are in opposition to um, the indigenous systems of property that are already here mm -hmm. or you know of, or systems of ownership that are and um collective use that already exist there's also um the other thing that the frontier does is it turns an area into a place of 
resource extraction, mm, where yeah. you're going to come and get materials out of the land and create wealth from those materials. And then settlers are going to be the beneficiaries of that wealth mm -hmm. within the frontier myth. Uh, and so that is a radically different idea about how to use land than the indigenous people who have always stewarded Alaska have. Mm -hmm. And in order to make this, this transition to turn Alaska into this frontier, it, um, it requires this both a paradigm shift, um, but also a lot of material violence in order mm -hmm. to enforce these new ideas. Mm -hmm. Earlier, you said that your dad's interest in Alaska started back when he was reading these adventure magazines that featured Alaska. I'm going to guess your dad was born in the 40s or the 50s? Uh, a little later in the 60s. In the 60s. Okay, so the adventure magazines of the 60s, I'm sure, weren't very, what's a good way to put it, um, considerate of Alaska Native traditions and life ways. So I'm interested to see what you think about your dad's perspective when he moved to Alaska. That perspective, in my opinion, would be very much the last frontier perspective. Yeah, yeah, I think it definitely was. Um, and, you know, I haven't really seen the source material in terms of the kinds of magazines that he subscribed to. But I, I think these myths about Alaska, uh, Alaska being a last frontier, Alaska being or this untouched wilderness, uh, Alaska being this place that you can come escape and reinvent yourself. They've been around for a long time. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I, I imagine uh, that a lot of those materials that my dad was reading echo uh, some of these ideas that are still circulating about Alaska today, mm -hmm. even if um, in the present day, there is more respect and recognition of Alaska Native cultures and lifeways and, and sovereignty uh, here in the state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about that at all? You know, your your dad's perspective, I'm, I'm not sure, I would imagine it's changed, but thinking about um, this project, the Alaska myth, and maybe reconciling that initial decision for your dad to move to Alaska. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that I have kind of constantly been thinking about with, with this project, because I would say those same ideas that really lured my dad up here, they mm -hmm. were also just kind of omnipresent throughout my childhood growing up in Homer. I mean, in Homer, um, the main dragon town is Pioneer Street. Um, or, you know, there's a huge presence of commercial fishermen, or there are a mm -hmm. lot of people mm -hmm. who homesteaded in the area in the 70s. And so these very romanticized notions of what it means to live in Alaska, what it means to be an Alaskan, mm -hmm. or, you know, that kind of 
give a lend like a heroic quality to all of these activities that was all over the place in my childhood to the point mm -hmm. that I, I I never really stopped to think about what it meant. I think I, I just took a lot of that as kind of a given. Um, and it what you know, throughout the course of this project, it has required me to really face and understand and sit with some of the dark side of that, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, just everything that I was talking about earlier in terms of the violence that is necessary to create a frontier and enact a colonial project. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I still don't know entirely what to do with all of that, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be completely honest. What did that look like for you growing up in Homer? Oh, I mean, I, I think Homer is an interesting place because a lot of Alaskans think about it as this very idyllic community. And I think Homer also thinks of itself as a community that is very idyllic. Okay. And okay. in a lot of ways it is, um, or it's beautiful, obviously. Uh, and so my childhood, what I'd say it was pretty outdoorsy. Mm -hmm. It was a very community, community oriented. Uh, I was very involved in the arts, in music. There were a lot of opportunities for me to pursue different interests. And it was, um, it was a little bit like kind of growing up in a bubble. Okay. Um, and, and yeah, I think uh, in the same way that there are these very romantic notions about kind of growing up in Alaska, I think Homer kind of has its own mythology of being this community that um, really cares about its children or, you know, that is really accepting uh, where, where, you know, the arts are really important. And I think all of those things um, to, to a large degree are true. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I would say my childhood growing up in Homer, um, it, it, it had a very idyllic quality to it. Is there something wrong with idyllic? Have you learned to understand that term differently over the years? Oh, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think that there's something natural about idealism. And again, just like going back to this idea of storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. we understand our lives and our experiences as stories. Um, I think when things are, I, I think painting things as idyllic feels really good. <laughs> it feels really good and it kind of it affirms our experience and it affirms our sense of self mm -hmm. so you know growing up in in homer um and belonging to this community where there is i'd say a, a lot of idealism about what it means to uh 
to live together and care for each other and really be there for each other. Mm -hmm. um, I think the the idealism is is natural in that like everyone wants to feel good about their their stories and where they come from and what they belong to. Yeah. Um, I think the danger of idealism is that it just tends to distort the the truth. Mm, okay. Yeah. Or you know just. Um, when you're looking at something solely through rose-colored glasses, then the the messier things, the uglier things, the things that don't fit your narrative get rejected. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think, you know, if there's a problem with idealism, uh, it would be that. I have a tendency to really try to look at things in a realistic way and try to not let things like my own emotions get involved. And I wonder, was there a moment when this idea of idealism for you was kind of shattered and then, you know, you're forced to look at the reality of what you're looking at, your everyday life. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say I'm very much the opposite. I'm a, I'm definitely an idealist. I'm someone who's quite emotional and romantic at times, I think. Okay. And so in a lot of ways, I think that's something that I'm I'm always kind of dealing with and that my, my work deals with a lot mm -hmm. is this idea of creating some sort of ideal, creating some sort of narrative around a situation and uh, having to deal with the space between that narrative and the truth of the situation. Hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, and that and that can be painful. Um, I think, I guess an example that comes to mind is um, when I started working on this project, it, it coincided with moving back to Alaska okay. a couple of years ago in, in 2021. And I really wanted to do a project that looked at Alaskan identity, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and that just kind of, I, I think there's a way in which I was really starting to question uh, the idea of Alaskan identity that I was brought up with in in Homer mm -hmm. or you know so that um, I was actually having a conversation with with someone from Homer about this and they were saying it's it's a very that they were brought up with a very kind of like little house in the big woods idea of of being in Homer they're okay, they're quite a bit okay. older than I am um, but yeah, I just wanted to poke into that and deconstruct some of it and really um, understand what was beneath these really romantic notions of what it means to be Alaskan that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. um, and as I really started to dive very deeply into Alaska's history and understanding where some of these notions came from. And I, I just started to see Alaska with new eyes and, and mm. in a, in a way that was kind of shocking to me because I, I just, 
it was hard for me to believe that I had never seen how much the frontier myth is all around us mm -hmm. <laughs> here mm -hmm. in Alaska. So, you know, not just with street names like Pioneer or, or whatnot, but um, the, the kind of the the western vibe <laughs> that kind of generally um I, you see around towns at time or okay, or yeah. like the the obsession with bluegrass i don't know like <laughs> bluegrass is this very alaskan thing right which i was always funny to me and it never made sense to me yeah. but then when i started diving into this myth of the frontier i was like oh of course okay um it these these two things seemed obviously connected to me um and and so or, or you know i i think something else is there's this constant assertion of being alaskan so mm. naming everything you know fireweed and 49th state and you know frontier this and, and i'm not immune to this by any means mm -hmm. um but that there there's this when you start to scratch at this stuff you just see that these ideas about Alaska are being reasserted everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it's that it's not just for tourists. It's also for us as Alaskans. I think many people, um, and again, you know, I don't exclude myself from this, mm -hmm. are are very bought into these ideas, uh, these these myths about Alaska. What I think is also interesting is, you know, and I'm not sure how much traveling you've done to other, you know, like cowboy states, but there are ways that they refer to themselves, you know, like native, you know, I'm native to this area. I'm a native uh, Texan or I'm a native Coloradan. And I think coming from uh, the perspective of being born and raised in Alaska myself, I find that kind of offensive because for somebody in Alaska to be like, oh, I'm Alaska native, you'd be like, no, you're not. You know, Alaska natives are people who are indigenous or native to this place. Right. And I wonder if you have thought about maybe some of your frustration with the injustices and maybe the perpetuation of those injustices in Alaska comes from seeing some of how other states have behaved and where that mentality for Alaska could eventually lead to if it's not stopped. Yeah, I mean... Um... I wouldn't say exactly. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I mean, I've definitely n noticed that. And, and I lived in Washington for about 10 years after I graduated. I went to college in, in Tacoma and I stuck around there for, for quite a while. Um, you know, maybe I occasionally heard that. Um, but I honestly, I, I think what maybe one of the things that precluded me thinking about a lot of this stuff was maybe ironically um, living in Mexico for a period. Okay. Uh, so in college, I studied abroad in Mexico. I lived in Oaxaca. Uh, and the program that I was in was very focused on 
community development and the legacy of colonization mm. and indigenous resistance. Okay. And so a lot of what we did was travel to outer lying communities or meet with activists who were in a lot of ways, you know, they're they're fighting for their their sovereignty and for their traditional land rights and um in order to bring eyes to the harms of resource extraction mm -hmm. in some of their areas for those communities. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's such a different experience, obviously. I think that goes without saying than living in Alaska, but seeing these communities come together and you know, fight for rights around water, rights for traditional subsistence, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for fishing. It was just very resonant of a lot of the um, political struggles uh, I had observed growing up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think, you know, layering on understanding the history of colonization in that region um i think that is what really got me thinking about how some of those same dynamics have played out here in alaska okay what is your connection to an understanding of your own heritage yeah i mean uh so i mean i told you about my dad mm -hmm. uh so my dad is white um and my mom is Honduran uh, and she grew up in the US in New Orleans. And so because we moved to Alaska when I was so young, we were actually quite isolated from both sides of my family. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a household that was sort of bicultural, okay. <laughs> I guess I could say, or, you know, we we did get some connection or you know to being Honduran and or you know to my mom's culture primarily through my my Lita my grandmother coming to visit us every summer mm -hmm. and so you know that's when she my mom would speak Spanish that's when we would go to mass um that's when we would get um more of that connection I guess and what was that like for you um yeah well like I I said earlier, I think um, it, it was a little bit isolating um, from in terms of feeling connected to either side of my family growing up in Homer. Okay. I, I think that was something that I kind of struggled with through my childhood because my mom was very um focused on assimilating you know okay, and okay. and so i think she she's not really someone who tells a lot of stories about or you know whenever the the idea of kind of her childhood or her heritage came up um she would often kind of quickly shut down that conversation mm, okay. um and so if anything that left me with a lot of curiosity about um just getting to know her family and her culture more. Mm -hmm. um, and it also 
it, it did reinforce that sense of being connected to community in Homer. And, and I think this is the experience of a lot of people in Alaska when you don't have extended family here. You kind of just lean into the relationships with um, with your community and with the people around you, your your chosen family, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so, or, you know, I think growing up, um, ironically, I, I kind of felt more Alaskan than anything else. Like that, okay. that idea of like being Alaskan, that was a very primary identity for me, even more so than, you know, kind of identifying with my dad's family in Utah or, or, you know, my, um, the Honduran side of my family. Do you think that that, you know, understanding your own identity as Honduran, really embracing Alaska, do you think that that helped you understand, you know, or identify with the story you're telling in the Alaska myth? I do. Yeah, I do. Because I think, you know, part of like connecting with my mom's family and like being Honduran to me, mm -hmm. um, well, you know, first I, I learned to speak Spanish, um, which was something I, I grew up hearing but never never really could speak um and so that was a whole just layer of when you understand a, a language it's just it unlocks so much about the the culture like there's just yeah. so much embedded in in that and or you know and so i I, I really spent a lot of my 20s um, just kind of because my grandma always visited us. So mm -hmm. visiting where my mom grew up, like spending time in New Orleans with my my great grandmother and uh, before she passed and, and my cousins. Um, and in I, I think part of that reconnection journey for me was also inevitably understanding the history of colonization in Honduras mm -hmm. and um, the, you know, the ways that that has impacted my family um, or, you know, and also the ways in which I, I have mixed heritage and, um, or, you know, so also the ways in, I guess the the violence that my family has also enacted through that paradigm, right? Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I I carry all of that understanding with me to this project, um, and I, I I don't know that I could have made this project without really understanding my own identity and my positionality. Um, I guess. Which one do you think came first? You know, you understanding your heritage as Honduran or you delving into Alaska Native history, colonialism, and the myths that you're covering and trying to dispel in the podcast? Oh, um, just trying to understand my Honduran heritage uh, definitely came first. I mean, that's something that I um, 
kind of even even in childhood, I was always like asking about and trying to learn about and trying to understand and wanting to call members of my family. Like mm -hmm. that's that's something that I have always just been curious about and gravitated toward. Um, and so I, I think, you know, the the bulk of that work of just reconnecting with with my family and understanding that part of my heritage, I would say was kind of in my in my early 20s. Um, and I'd say really deconstructing a lot of these myths about Alaska. I don't know that I really started doing that until several years ago, uh, maybe maybe 2019 is when I like really started started thinking about it. So mm -hmm. I, and, you know, I was maybe 28 by then. You said that you'd call your relatives and you'd reconnect with them. What did those conversations sound like? Oh, I mean, I'd say they were very, um, well, they looked different from being a child to being an adult. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. when I was a child, it was really just kind of general conversations or, you know, some, sometimes trying to speak Spanish, mm -hmm. you know, just keep, keeping up with everyone and kind of how they were doing. And when it was, you know, as an adult, it was a lot more trying to understand my family's stories. Cause like I said, my mom, um, she, she just didn't, she, she just, that was not something that she thought a lot about mm, or okay. like really wanted to to pass down so or you know uh, as an adult it was kind of trying to piece together like well how did we end up in the u.s in the first place and what was life like in uh in honduras and or you know what were my like my grandma and my family members experiences of coming to the US and not being able to speak the language and, you know, trying to fit in and trying to uh, make a living, um, understanding my my grandma's faith, maybe on a on a deeper level, I think was part of that too, but mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. really um, trying trying to understand 
the context of my family's story and where mm -hmm. we come from um, and and why we're here in in some sense. Why do you think your mom didn't want to talk about that stuff? Oh, I, I think it was painful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my mom left New Orleans when she turned 18. Uh, and I think she kind of never looked back in, in a sense. And she wasn't super comfortable with me or anyone else really asking her to do that, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. fair, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you remember what her reaction was like when you started asking these questions? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was very, oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't know anything about that. Why are you asking that? Mm -hmm. Kind mm -hmm. of. Okay. And you're a pretty new mother, right? I am. Yeah, I have a 16-month-old son. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Do you feel like that has affected, maybe even changed or heightened your perception of the world? Um, I mean, yeah, certainly. I, I think it's becoming a parent. It's just a whole new dimension in terms <laughs> yeah, of I bet. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of like the responsibilities that are on your plate, but also um, you know, your your responsibilities to your child. Mm -hmm. Uh and what you how you the environment that you want to provide for them and the knowledge that you want to pass down and almost like the inheritance that you want to give them a sense, not just in terms of resources, but in terms of knowledge, you know, of the world mm -hmm. and, and where they come from. Um, and so, it, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I think maybe subconsciously, but some of the work that I did in terms of just wanting to reconnect with my family and, you know, understand where we come from and understand our, our stories. I think some of that I did because I wanted to be able to pass that down to my kids mm -hmm. um, when I was ready to have them. And, and I, I didn't want to, you know, and, and this isn't blaming my parents in any sense, but I, I, I just, I did feel a sense of disconnection as a child that I did not want my kids to feel. Um, and so all of that has absolutely affected my outlook on parenting mm -hmm. or, you know, I was going to say how I parent, but I don't know, you know, my, my kid's so young, um, though we are, we are trying to teach him Spanish. So how do you think you'll respond? if your son eventually asks you about his heritage? Well, yeah. I mean, I hope that I'll be able to give him a stronger sense of that than I had when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, just... And, and being able to share those stories of, like, this was your great grandmother and what she went through and mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. your grandmother and and what she went through you know we're we're Honduran and these are some of the these are some of the things that were given to me even if they're little things you know like eating plantains and mantequilla which is this type of 
Honduran, it's like Honduran sour cream that you put on everything. Okay. Um, or, you know, these are, so just be, I, I just want to be able to give him those pieces of my heritage that have been passed down to me or that I've had to gone, had to go out and seek, but I want to be able to offer to him, you know, this is, this is what I know, you know, these mm -hmm. are the, the traditions that we have practiced, you know, this is our language. Mm -hmm. Um, and, or, you know, I would hope that he would feel more settled about that side of things or, you know, and then the same with my dad and, you know, this is, this is his family, this is his story. Mm -hmm. And then of course my, my husband's side of things too. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's more his responsibility, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, um, like I said, I, I think I, I just want him to have that sense of, of inheritance like this is this is what i've inherited and this is what i i know about who i am and where i come from yeah yeah that's great i love that you know i i ask i ask those questions that line of questioning you know about your family because in part i'm in this process or i guess i've been in this process for years now of really trying to record conversations with my family you know, the most recent one I did was with my grandpa, Bob, who lives in Oklahoma. And, you know, I spent a lot of time writing questions, getting a hold of my mom and her sisters to help give me questions. And it's actually going to be a Christmas present uh, for them. So I'm, oh I'm really excited gosh. to give it to them. Um, but I also think of it as, you know, a way of preserving my family history for posterity, because I would have loved to hear a conversation with, um, I don't know, my great grandfather or my great grandmother, you know? And I think that there's so much in a voice. There's so much that is telling there's cadence, there's emphasis, there's all of that. And I, I really think that, um, it's a really wonderful thing to be able to gift to your family, your kids, so they can give to their kids and maybe, you know, they can carry on the tradition as well. That's so beautiful. Yeah, I love that. And it's it's not easy work to do either. No, I, not at all. <laughs> yeah, just to, or, you know, how do you, how do you facilitate someone telling their their story and passing mm -hmm. down what is is important to them so that's that's incredible that that you're you're doing that how comfortable are you with asking difficult questions you know ironically i think it still makes me uncomfortable sometimes okay. um you know I, I guess i would say I, I maybe I'm kind of 50 50 on it <laughs> uh, because, you know, I, I do, I think a lot of my work and a lot of this podcast and even, you know, as you've been saying through this interview, I, I think I have always been doing this work in some ways of yeah. trying to shake out 
in my family or, you know, the the things that people might not want to look at or want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's still not a comfortable process sometimes yeah. <laughs> just because I do it doesn't mean it's comfortable, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's also, it's something that you have to be really sensitive about. I mean, I think when I was young and, you know, trying to get this, this, trying to better understand my family and my place in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I did understand why my mom wouldn't want to talk about things, you know, why she wouldn't want to talk about her childhood. Again, mm-hmm. like I, I grew up in Homer and and I had a very beautiful childhood, um, which I think is something that both of my parents wanted for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the idea that someone wouldn't want to talk about that was kind of incomprehensible to me. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, but when you're asking difficult questions a lot of times there is potentially trauma involved or Mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. you know potentially things that can be that are unresolved and that are sticky for people to discuss and Mm -hmm, um, that requires a lot of sensitivity too yeah are there any questions or subjects that were specifically tough for you to talk about Oh gosh, you mean in general or? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a that's a good question because, you know, we're kind of talking about two things here. We're talking about your family history, your heritage, as well as the Alaska myth, your podcast. And I think that there is a lot of overlap there. There's a lot of overlap and motivation is the sense that I'm getting, but maybe the podcast you know, were there anything, were there any questions or subjects that were tough for you to talk about within that podcast? Yeah, well, I mean, I am still reporting some of some of the podcasts. So the conversations are kind of ongoing. Um, but I mean, I think a lot of it is difficult to talk about. Or mm-hmm. I mean, even when I started going down this I think it took me a long time to even articulate to myself what I was trying to get at with that first episode and realizing like, oh, what I really want to do here is pull apart this idea of the last frontier. Mm -hmm. Because I think inherently I was worried how people would react to that. Mm, Okay. Um, I I mean, it's, it's just such a fundamental idea and it's, often framed so positively here um it it took me a long time to to make that episode and i think a lot of it was so figuring out the framing and that i wanted to directly look at the problems with the idea of the last frontier um and and then you know th- emotionally reporting that episode was quite difficult um because it was a lot of really understanding the frontier in context Mm -hmm. and not just what that has looked like in alaska or you know but what does it mean what is a frontier in general? What does it mean to turn the West into a frontier? Or, you know, who 
who has to be or just the immense amount of violence against indigenous people that that entails the mm -hmm. genocide that that entails um just really fully wrapping my head around that took a lot of research and a lot of time to kind of grieve that too that isn't it's not inherent you know it's it's not explicitly discussed in the episode but it was definitely part of making the episode if mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah part of the process yeah yeah and i mean um a lot of this is is really heavy subject matter that um the the kodiak episode obviously mm -hmm. just discusses um the the tremendous colonial violence that that happened there mm -hmm. um or you know and it also discusses a a play that simultaneously was uh important to a lot of members of the community and that was very violent in my i think you can say that it's violent in terms of how it portrays indigenous people mm -hmm. um and it just exploring the impacts and the aftermaths of that i mean that that was quite tricky as well um the episode that i'm i'm working on now and will come out later this month it's about lawlessness quote unquote in the gold rush mm -hmm. and um again the the stories that i heard about lawlessness when i was a kid were very sanitized or mm -hmm. you know like homer is named after homer pennock who was this kind of famous swindler um who brought people to the peninsula saying that they there was going to be gold and all they found was coal mm, okay. um or yeah and so there's you hear stories like that, you hear stories of Soapy Smith, and, and then you hear these stories about miners' justice and how all these brave miners came together and, you know, organized themselves to dole out justice in their communities in the absence of law enforcement, which mm -hmm. is a very heroic framing of that story that is, um, like, really doesn't account for a lot of the history and the context. Yeah, reading those old Western stories, adventure stories, or even journalism, you really have to understand the context in which they were written and then also understand journalism at the time to a certain extent. And then with the stories, the adventure magazines, you really had to understand entertainment at the time and so much of it was just shrouded in bullshit and really trying to prop up an idea for the sake of capitalism almost you know come out here and stake your claim because it's going fast it's like an advertisement almost mm -hmm. or, exactly yeah 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 and then or and i it does serve a capitalistic purpose uh but i i guess i'd argue that it also serves these deeper purposes of justifying the the violence and erasing 
the indigenous people and you know their their stories or you know their their claims or and relationship to the land mm -hmm. um you know and when you think about these kind of these these advertisements or these stories that are saying oh come to this area and stake your claim and get get what's yours mm -hmm. i i mean the colonial a colonial project needs a mass of settlers it mm -hmm. needs a presence of settlers in order to work in order to be able to seize the land essentially mm -hmm. um that that's that's the engine that makes that run um and so there's just this I, I think to me, it's it's a very interesting contradiction in the way those stories are told and often very cartoonishly. I mm -hmm. mean, almost it's almost kind of like Disney level cartoon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's it's just such a stark contrast to the reality of it. And and it just makes me question, and I think this is something that I'm running up again and again with this project, is like, why is it that these stories are so cartoonish or, you know, that people are painted as so heroic or, mm -hmm. you know, that there's, wh why, why do they need to have that quality to them in order to be is it to make them palatable or, you know, is it because that's an easy way to buy a large group of people into them? I, mm -hmm. I don't know that I, I have an answer at this point, but it, it's just, you see it again and again. You know, earlier this year, I interviewed Kristen Olford, who is the director of the Museum of Southern Australia. And she said that the museum and the country's approach is to be two-way minded, meaning they see a benefit in the combination of Western and indigenous thought and life ways. How do you feel about that perspective that both Western and native ways of living can benefit from one another? I think, yeah, there's absolutely a benefit to that exchange. And, you know, in some ways that's one of the things that I, you know, we have been trying to do with the podcast is almost putting these different perspectives in conversation with each other mm -hmm. and seeing, um, you know, how does this Alaska Native oral history versus a settler's written record, where do these perspectives interlock mm -hmm. or, um, kind of how, how how might they putting these two things together add to our broader understanding of what this history was and what it meant and how it reverberates into today um yeah and i think you know we as westerners certainly have a lot to understand from indigenous perspectives, from Alaska Native perspectives. Um, I, I think, you know, you're kind of constantly seeing where Western knowledge is almost 
catching up to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. things that indigenous people have always known, you know, yeah. have known for, for millennia. Um, and so I think the, the Western framework, it's so rational a lot of times, or I would say kind of hyper rational okay. or claims to be hyper rational yeah. or, you know, claims to be like hyper objective in, in ways that almost don't don't let in other perspectives it create it's like it gatekeeps other perspectives mm -hmm. by um shuttering shuttering out that certain types of knowledge and i think understanding that that is a perspective mm -hmm. that it's not an objective truth um i think is really important mm -hmm. I think a good example of an early colonizer myth in Alaska comes in episode two of the Alaska myth when you talk about how throughout your research you came across this idea that Russian fur traders weren't good at hunting sea otters and they could never, and I'm quoting you here, they could never have survived in Alaska, much less profited from the fur trade without exploiting native people and their relationship to the land. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, I feel like the myth that I heard was the opposite of that. The myth that I heard was that uh, Russians were like uniquely suited somehow in order to colonize Alaska because they share a northern climate. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think when you frame it in that way, it really leaves out the fact that like Russian people really, they didn't have the skills, they didn't have the technology in order to be able to extract those resources on mass. Mm -hmm. um, and so, or, you know, when you when you think about coming to a place and turning it into a resource colony and using the land, um, what the Russians were doing, it, it went beyond exploiting the land and it went also beyond exploiting Alaska native labor. They they were completely reliant on essentially the exploitation of Alaska native culture and technology and understanding in order to be able to like even survive in Alaska, much mm. less make any kind of profit in the fur trade. And that's just um not how that story was told to me at all when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Do you know if your dad or your mom or any other family that has spent time in Alaska has listened to your podcast? Uh, yeah. Yeah, they have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do they think? Uh, I mean, I think they think it's interesting. I think they think, and they told me that they think it's a perspective that they haven't really considered. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that it, it just, it makes you look at the things that you have been told or these myths that are really taken for granted in a different way and, you know, it's a very nice thing to hear from my parents because yeah. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what I was going for, I guess. Um, but 
um, yeah, I think it has also challenged the way that they view Alaska. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's almost as much as you can really hope for with something like this, because in so many situations, you're preaching to the choir. And in the off chance that someone who doesn't agree with that perspective will listen to the podcast. I think that's pretty rare, but in certain situations, somebody who may not listen to it does listen to it. I wonder how often that actually changes their perspective. Yeah. And, and that's a great question. I mean, I, that's something I've gotten a lot of feedback from listeners, but primarily really positive, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. to be a hundred percent honest, I, I think I, I was expecting maybe a little bit more pushback than I have gotten. Okay. Um, just because I know maybe how I felt when I was, was making a lot of, of this and reporting a lot of this, like I said, it, um, a lot of the reporting has, has challenged me, um, just from an emotional perspective and um, just with, you know, it's reckoning with ideas that can be challenging. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I haven't gotten really any negative feedback about the podcast, um, which is, is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, I, I do, also wonder about that sense of kind of preaching to the choir or you know whether you're whether you are sharing things that maybe are just kind of affirming things that people already know you know mm -hmm. was there ever a point when you thought that this maybe wasn't your story to tell i mean i think that's something when, at the beginning of the project, yeah, I had a lot of reticence around, um, you know, part of the reason that I wanted to work on the podcast in kind of a team capacity, or mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, I kind of slowly assembled that team over about a, a year and it's because I wanted to have the perspectives of multiple people uh, while I was doing this work. Uh, and so, you know, it, the team started off with me, uh, my brother who's a history major joined the project and kind of became the reason that it's even a history podcast in the first place, just because of all, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to make this podcast about Alaskan identity. And he was like, you should go read these 10 history books. And okay, okay. so it kind of morphed into a historical project. Um, yeah. And then we started working with Alice Cunnick Glenn from Coffee and Quack. Mm -hmm. um, and she just has such a refreshing perspective on things. Yeah. Um, so she became a collaborator. And then I also have a story editor who's based in Chicago, who kind of helps us shape the podcast into something that's narrative mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully 
compelling, easy to listen to, um, which can be hard when you're talking about a lot of really dense historical stuff and, yeah, you know, yeah. settler colonialism and whatnot. Um, and so it really is a, a team effort. Um, but um, yeah, I, I have tried to just think about I think I'm always thinking about how my own positionality, you know, how growing up in Alaska, absorbing the stories I did, being mm -hmm. a settler, or, you know, my my heritage, all, all the layers of that are going to impact how I see the world and are inevitably going to impact how I tell stories. Um, and so I have just tried to you know, work hard to include multiple perspectives on the production team, um, but also when possible, try to work closely with sources as well, the people that I'm speaking with in order to make sure that um, I'm representing their stories well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Were you ever concerned about you know, not wanting to further inflate a harmful myth. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I don't know that that perspective has so much come to mind just because I have tried it. Like if anything, maybe that's something that's in the background. Okay. okay. Um, because I think, when you're doing something that is deconstructing a myth mm -hmm. or, you know, or deconstructing an identity that whole people hold really dear, mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. a way that you can tell the story that deconstructs it, but in a way that doesn't really challenge it <laughs> or deconstructs it, but ends up reifying it or reiterating it. Yeah. Um, and so if anything, you know, that knowledge is always with me while I'm making this podcast and I am just trying very hard not to tell the story in a way that ends up reinforcing the things that I'm trying to deconstruct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's understood that certain myths can have negative repercussions on how we understand the history of Alaska. We've been talking a lot about that during the conversation. Have you given any thought to how we might reconcile these myths and move forward? I mean, I think that's something that it's a thought that's kind of still in process for me, um, for sure. But, but the thing that I am constantly thinking about is, um, I guess maybe two things. So one is something that Tia Tidwell, uh, who is a professor at UAF and a guest on the first episode of the podcast mm -hmm. said during our interview, um, she said that we're all responsible for the history of this place and we're all responsible for envisioning a future where indigenous people can continue to thrive mm -hmm. um, because in her work as set in studying settler fantasies she sees how often these settler fantasies imagine 
indigenous people as not existing in the future essentially they they imagine the the erasure of indigenous people mm -hmm. in in the future um and so i think that's one thing that i um i'm thinking a lot about and the other thing is just what would alaska what does alaska look like beyond these myths mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um what does alaska look like when we're not considering that it is a a rugged place for adventure you know that it's a place for individualism um when we're not considering it as um a perpetual resource extraction colony for that matter mm -hmm. um so i think that's something else that i um I, I think these are almost not, they're things that blur what our vision of the state could be. Mm -hmm. um, they're things that blur what our idea of that future could look like. Um, and they're things that I'm hoping the podcast will maybe help people to be able to do is just to to see Alaska beyond these myths that have come to define it in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Well, Caitlin, those are all the questions I have for you. I want to thank you for spending this time with me, talking about your life and your podcast. And I know I had some tough questions in there, and I really appreciate your thoughtful answers. Well, thanks so much, Cody. Uh, it's just been a pleasure to get to chat with you. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think just that I know that through your podcast, uh, you do a lot of similar work too in terms of just thinking about Alaskan identity and history and and culture and I I appreciate the perspective that you lend to to these topics as well. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, well thank you. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker and Carrie Hombach. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors 